Join me today, if you would, in Romans chapter number six. Romans chapter number six. Now, these are days that I'm about to reference and speak of that are oftentimes when they are recalled to memory, very painful days. I'm acknowledging that at the very beginning or the outset of this this opening recollection because I do know I'm about to bring something up that for many people is very hurtful. It is when we start to remember times of loss and more specifically loss when it comes to a person. The day a person died And I have many recollections in my own history, my own life of of occasions when someone that I knew, someone that I loved passed, they died. The first prominent, uh, uh, the first time that one of those occasions stood out to me in, in a very personal way, one of those hurtful ways, one of those unexpected ways was when my own grandfather Past, I was 12 years old. In fact, the day is a little more, more memorable to me because earlier that day I had been riding bikes with my cousin and my cousin pulled in front of me with his bike and mine went down and, and I had a good, you know, rough and tumble a collision and, and I scraped myself up really well. And that night we went up to my grandparents' apartment, a place that they lived that was, was, you had to be a certain age to live there. So we went up to see grandpa and grandma and and I'm showing my grandfather my injuries and and he patched me up. And then I remember this was so wonderful as a 12-year-old, he put my arm in a sling. I thought, this is the coolest thing ever, you know? Couldn't wait to show people my wound and my sling and and so he patched me up and, and late that night, my parents were called to the hospital. My grandfather had been taken and, and he had a massive heart attack and he died. It was the first person very close to me that I remember dying. Through the years, I have had many people that I have known and deeply loved die. I've been in the presence of those that have breathed their last breath here and taken their first breath in eternity. They are powerful moments because we're speaking about the the life and the death of real people. The title of my message today speaks to that which I will submit to you is the most important death that you personally could ever experience or encounter. The title of my message is Remembering the Day You Died. Now, I'm not speaking about some near-death experience. I'm not talking about the the fact that there may be people who have experienced the the, the cessation of their heart beating or or they were no longer breathing and and through some intervention, they were were brought back to this sense of physical normalcy. I'm I'm not speaking about that. And as wonderful and, and grateful as we may be, I am speaking about the day that you died never to live in that way again. 
It is the most powerful remembrance that a person can actually have and certainly the most powerful of experiences a person can ever experience. To provide some some context, the, the day I died was March 20th, 1982. That day I did truly die. It's a day that I am called to biblically recollect and live in light of on a continual basis. Now, I will tell you there are many times when I actually forget that I did die on March 20th, 1982, but I did. And when I recall, bring to mind the reality of that event, its impact on my life is powerful and intended to be The day I died and remembering it, actually life changing. Several years ago, I was preaching in Malaysia. I was there to preach to a rather large church. The church was was meeting in Singapore, but they, they did a big family conference in Malaysia. And so my family and I went and and there I preached to this church family conference in Malaysia. One of the messages I was preaching was a message regarding victory over sin. And I was talking about the principles that we should have regarding this this continual everyday experience of victory over sin. And one of the statements that I made, I, I made and expounded upon and preached in conjunction with, connection with other Bible principles regarding victory over sin. The statement that I made is you need to die every day to sin. And I made the the point rather emphatically and I gave helpful content regarding this idea of you need to die every day to sin. The couple, the ministry couple that had invited us to come, wonderful couple. We remain dear friends to this day. After the service, in fact, sometime after the service through conversation, they began to ask some questions regarding the message. And they were good questions and questions that we began to discuss. And then they asked me a question about the comment that I made about dying daily to sin. And I referenced passages of scripture where where the apostle Paul mentions that he himself said, I die daily in 1 Corinthians 15. And then they began to say, you know, we, we believe that that statement, when Paul said, I die daily, was a statement he was making that he lives in light of the reality of his death every day. He, he said, listen, I, I, why would I go and experience all of these things? He says, I, I live with the reality of my imminent death every day. But he, he went on to say, as we had this conversation, I believe that a person actually only dies once and then lives in light of that death. That statement and that conversation quite honestly, began a process of thinking 
in my life personally and in Julie's life, ours together, that still is quite profound in our lives personally to this day. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter 6. Paul is going to transition from from what he has been building upon, obviously in Romans chapter 5, and he begins with this statement that is, um, almost takes us back. Romans chapter 6, verse number 1, what shall we say then? In light of what has just been said in Romans chapter 5, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, when we look back at Romans chapter 5, we remember that there were two Adams presented. The first Adam was presented as the beginning of creation. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is the beginning of the new creation. In contrast, stemming from both of those, they couldn't be more distinct, more opposite. Everything that we see stemming from the first Adam, we find this is negative. All the consequences, these these are undesirable. All the things stemming from the second Adam are very desirable. These are things that we want in our lives, the first and the second Adam. And Paul articulates those powerfully throughout Romans chapter 5. He also presents, and we haven't taken time to look at this, but we'll mention, he also mentions through the course of Romans chapter uh, 5, he mentions four kings or, or four of those that reign. He, he mentions king sin in Romans 5.21. Sin hath reigned unto death, king sin. In Romans 5.17, he mentions king death, By one man's offense, death reigned. But then the whole picture seems to turn and he mentions King Grace. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign. And then he gets to the great king, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 17, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Paul throughout this chapter is presenting revolutionary truths. People are listening to these and and they're processing in light of what they know about God, what they know about themselves and what they know about this idea of reconciliation, being made one right with God. And now Paul starts to, as a, as a skilled legal mind, he begins anticipating those who are deeply connected to their own righteousness. Those who are deeply connected to their own traditions, their own ways. So as that, that skillful lawyer anticipating the arguments of his opponents, Here's what he does. He actually introduces their argument for them and then he dismantles this argument piece by piece while at the same time strengthening his own position. Let's take a look at what it is that is being presented in this passage of scripture. Now we've been trying to 
keep a good pace through the book of Romans. Some of you might say, well, you're going too fast. And some of you are like, no, 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 keep moving. And we're, we're trying to keep a balanced pace through the book of Romans. It is one of those masterpieces of our theology, our doctrine. We have actually covered some, some sections of Romans in, in one fell swoop. And as we get to Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, we will not rush through these passages. They are so integral in our thinking and consequential in our living that we will take a, an easy stride through Romans 6, 7, and 8. Let's look, if we will, again at the wrong question that the Apostle Paul posits. He, he puts it out there and he does so because he's saying, all right, now some of you are asking this. Look again at verse number one. What shall we then say? Now here's the wrong question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The argument he both declares and then will shortly destroy goes as follows. He's saying, shouldn't we continue to sin a lot? Because now the, 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 the opposition to Paul's teaching is going to say, Paul, you just said that where sin abounds, abounds. That means where there's a lot of sin grace even more super abounds. So doesn't it make sense? I mean, if we're thinking through this and in our own logic, doesn't it make sense? Okay, if you have this much sin, you're gonna have this much grace. So how about have this much sin so you can have this much grace? And listen, listen, if there's super grace, let's be super sinners so we can experience super grace. That's the argument that Paul's anticipating. And I mean, it's an, at least on the surface, it's an honest or at least a good question. Now there is teaching that existed in Paul's day. Certainly it's prevalent in our day today. And it comes from Romans 5.20. Moreover, in fact, look back in your Bible. Put your eyes on the verse again. Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law, that's an important word. We're going to reference this again in a moment. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The, the word law that's used there is the Greek word namas, namas. It's the Greek word for law. Now there is a compound word that, that we use today. It's not familiar, but, but it comes from this. The, the prefix anti, that means against. So what we've done now is we've taken and there's a teaching that combines the two words, anti-namas or antinomian. Antinomian, you say that's anti-law, correct. So there's this scriptural twisting that says, let's live this antinomian lifestyle. L let's be against the law. Because, listen, the, the law is there. Clearly God gave it, but didn't God give grace? And if he's going to give more grace, the, 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 listen, grace that is greater than our sin, let's be great sinners so that we can actually experience even greater grace. 
Now, one of the, the most famous leaders of, of this thinking of antinomianism is one who is referred to as Rasputin. He was also referred to as the Mad Monk. His original name, his real name was Grigory, but, but the locals gave him the name of Rasputin because that name means debauchery. It means immorality. And, and this man was so immoral that they said the name fits and he kept the name. Rasputin really began to teach the idea that conversion is really better through great sinning. He's teaching, in a sense, salvation by sinning. Rasputin declared that if you are simply an ordinary sinner, you are not giving God an opportunity to show his glory. So you need to be an extraordinary sinner. There have always been those who have attempted to teach a justification that did not in some way, shape, or form lead to sanctification. Now, we're, we're on some, some really, you know, potentially dangerous ground. So please know, we, we have to be careful with this, but, but we also can't not address this because Paul does. There are those that say that, well, well listen, if, if I'm justified, that's it. There's nothing else. True, justification is one and done. But what does justification always lead the believer to? And this is what Paul weaves through all of his writings. The, the God intended outcome of justification is clearly sanctification. Justification, it's the one time legal declaration where God declares the guilty sinner to be righteous, done. The gavel has come down. There's nothing left to say. There's nothing left to add. There's nothing left to do. Justified. That's done. You say, okay, so it doesn't matter what I do, right? Well, as far as justification is concerned, right. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't do anything to get salvation and you can't do anything to keep salvation. It originates, it is maintained, it is all the gift of Almighty God. A gift, remember, in its truest sense is not because you deserve it. A gift is not because you are good, a gift is because the giver is good. And God gave us the gift of salvation. Have you received it? Have you received, accepted that gift of salvation? Well, if not, you're invited to even today. Many in here, many watching have already received that gift of salvation. You say, okay, so, so really can't we live however we want? Do you know a person doesn't truly understand grace? If they don't understand that my justification leads me to live a life of sanctification. You say, well, what is sanctification? We might define it by saying it's the lifelong process of growing into the likeness of Christ. Our sanctification, it's the expectation for every true follower of Jesus. It, it, it may be slower 
than we'd like. It may be faltering. It may be at times discouraging, but it should be present. It should be our desire. It should be our pursuit. And that is to have my life shaped into the likeness of Jesus. These are two very different teachings, but they are, in a sense, they go hand in hand. They walk with one another. With one another. Paul answers this question directly again later in the chapter, in, in verse number 15 in chapter 6. He says, in essence, the same thing. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Again, he uses the strongest of responses, God forbid. He's saying sanctification, a life of growing into the likeness of Christ should be the natural, normal pursuit of those who have experienced justification. Well, we've seen the wrong question. The wrong question is, should I sin more to get more? And the answer is, God forbid. Well, let's ask the right question. The right question, and he does that really in verse number two. So let's start in verse one again in Romans chapter six and notice the right question that he asks. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And here's the next question. This is a good one. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Okay, remember with language that can't be any stronger, he is saying, God forbid. Paul answers the first question with the correct question. He's saying, how shall we who have died to sin be comfortable living in it? How shall we who have died to sin, how can we live a life with right thinking saying, I'm all good with the life I have died to? What does being dead to sin then mean? If we say, okay, I, I'm, I'm with you so far that the wrong question is, shouldn't I, hey, can I sin more? Can I continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, that's a bad question. God forbid. The right question, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You say, okay, that's a good question. Uh, pastor, whew, I'm with you. I, I know what happened. Um, uh, okay, so I died. The most important day of my life is remembering the day I died. Whew. But what does it mean to be dead to sin? Okay, before we answer that question, let's at least acknowledge what it does not mean. And this is where oftentimes I think we experience some confusion. I, oh boy, what does it mean to be dead to sin? I, I think it means this. No, 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 no. Let's start with what does it not mean to be dead to sin? Okay, the first thing that it does not mean is this. It does not mean that you died to the allurement of sin. Being dead to sin does not mean that you died to the allurement of sin. We know this both personally and we know it practically. This argument says that, listen, if a dead body can't respond, then neither can I since I have died to sin. If I take the, the illustration of dead to sin to its logical conclusion, we could deduce that we must be completely immune from the allure of sin. Therefore, I, I must be completely immune to sin because I died. Okay, 
How many of you, by raise of hands, would tell me that you have no more, sin holds no more attraction to you, and therefore, quite honestly, you never sin? How many of you, that has been your experience? Do you know, I do not believe that there is a person here who is sinless. Oh, I, be, I do believe that there are people here who in Christ have a position of sinlessness, but I do not believe that you lost your allure to sin. How many of you have ever been offended because of your pride, not because of the offense? How many of you have ever had some thought about another person that was less than the thought of Christ? How many of you have ever had some hateful something come up within you that, oh, I hate when... How many of you have ever had your flesh desire something that you know clearly in Scripture is forbidden? Uh, let me ask the other question. How many of you have found personally that you still have some draw, some pull towards sin? How many of you have ever had that? Let me see by, by a f- most of you. Dr. Zach? I had it up. I had it up. Okay, just checking to make sure we're on the same team here. So, so our experience, our, our practical, like, wow, this is where I'm living. So, okay, so let me ask you, how can you be dead and still have some allurement to sin? Romans 6.12, we'll cover this more thoroughly, but let's at least acknowledge it here. Why would Paul have to address this if you had no more allurement to sin? Why? Well, I I suppose he's addressing this because he himself is acknowledging we still have the ability and even the desire to sin. Here's what the Bible says. Romans 6, verse number 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your, and this is an important expression, mortal body. Did you know everybody came here today with your mortal body? Everybody brought yours with you today. Nobody said, no, I'm having some out of, but no, 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 no. You brought it with you today, okay? Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Now, pause for just a moment. Paul doesn't always jump back and forth between your mortal body and yourself. Who's in control of your mortal body? You or your body? Say, well, well, there's kind of this this pull, this tug between the two. Well, one of the two is going to win. Your mortal body that says, hey, listen, every desire I ever had before salvation, it has retained. So you're going to have to make a decision, even though, okay, I died. I now have to make a decision as to what it is that I submit and surrender myself to. He goes on further. He says, neither yield you yourselves uh, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. There are some that say we are entirely dead to the influence, the power, and the love of sin. These believe in sinless perfection. That is not the teaching of scripture. In fact, Paul's argument would be unnecessary if that were true. 
So the first thing that this does not mean, it doesn't mean that you died to the allurement of sin. Sin is still alluring. What else does it not mean? It doesn't mean that we should start dying to sin. It doesn't mean that we should start. Okay, you know what I need to do? I need to start dying to sin. That's what, hey, that's a good, okay, so tomorrow I'm going to start dying to sin. This argument says that now that you're a Christian, you should begin resisting the urge to sin and continually die to sin's power. Okay, I'm a Christian now. I need to stop doing that. You know, I need to start dying to sin. There's a guy named Neil Anderson. He wrote a book called The Way of Escape. And in that, he shared this experience. He said, a pastor stopped by my office one day and said, I've been struggling for 22 years in my Christian experience. It's been one trial after another, and I think I know what my problem is. I was doing my devotions the other day when I came across Colossians 3.3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's the key to victory, isn't it? I assured him that it, that it was. Then he asked, how do I do that? Can I listen? He said, I, I came across Colossians 3.3, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. How do I do that? I was surprised by his question, so I asked him to look at the passage again and read it just a little slower. So he read it again, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Again, he asked in desperation, I know I need to die with Christ, but how do I do it? This dear man had been desperately trying for 22 years to do something that has already been done, to become someone he already is. He's not alone. Many Bible-believing Christians are bogged down regarding maturity and victory because they are trying to become something they already are. This is an important concept. Like, how do I do this? Oh, that, that is not the right question. It doesn't mean that you should start dying to sin. He is saying that because of what has happened to us, we no longer are obligated to continue sinning. The tense of the verbs in the next 10 verses in Romans communicates that this is an action that has already occurred in the past, not some future event, nor is it an ongoing event. It is telling us that the action has already been done. Some say, well, we are to be dying more and more to sin. Again, this is impossible. He doesn't say in the continuous present state, be dying to sin. He said, you are dead to sin. The apostle says we died. That is a one-time fact. The third thing that it doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean I am free from being defeated, albeit temporarily, by sin. It doesn't mean I am now, I'm never going to be defeated by sin again. I'm not talking about our ultimate victory. I am talking about my daily battle against sin. I know we have won the war, but there are yet many battles to be fought. Sadly, my experience says, I have not won all of those battles. I suspect that that may be your experience as well. It's not that we we cannot sin. It's not that we're like, okay, I I, I guess I can't sin any. I have retained my ability. 
But that is not in my truest essence who I am. I died with Jesus Christ. I'm again not talking about this, this ultimate victory. Sadly, I don't win every battle today. That's where growing in Christ comes into the daily experience and existence of my life. So then what does it mean to have died with Christ? There's a man who wrote a book. His name is Dick Flatten. The book is called The Marvelous Exchange. Listen to what he wrote. We who have experienced new birth in Christ are no longer in bondage to the control of sin in our lives. It is not that we cannot sin. We can and do sin. But our union with Christ has given us the ability not to have, not to, have to sin any longer. You and I have been transferred through death to the new reign of grace. Augustine explained it this way, and it's been helpful. He explained that, that when, when man was created, he was created with the ability to sin. He could, and, and clearly Adam and Eve did. Now, they were created without sin, but they were created with the ability to. They could sin. After the fall, man then was in a position where all he could do was sin. Even his very best was, was as a filthy rag. Man could do nothing but sin. After Jesus Christ, something dramatically changed. And now it's not as Adam that he could sin. It's not as, as the fallen man, all he can do is sin. Now those who are in Christ are able not to sin. You do not have to serve an old master. Previously, sin reigned to death, but now Jesus Christ reigns to life and victory. I am no longer bound to an old master. I have died to the reign of sin, not to the ability to sin. And that really is when you say, what does it mean to have died with Christ? Okay, I died to the reign of sin. I didn't die to the ability to sin. That will happen ultimately when I cast off this mortal flesh. Our Lord's death and resurrection has brought the reign of sin to a conclusion. Now we are ruled by the reign of grace in Christ Jesus. The word reign, it means power, influence, force, authority. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Now, some may say, I am, if, if I am truly a child of Christ, how is it that I can still fall into sin? Well, it's true because Paul is not saying that we are sinless, but that we are no longer under its authority. Let, let's let's um, close with this illustration. How many of you served in one of the branches of our military, either currently or at some point in the past? Raise your hand if you ever served in the military. Okay, so there are many in here scattered throughout. How many of you, I'm just curious about this, how many of you had a tough drill sergeant? How many of you remember your drill? Okay, lots, man, your hands went up faster on that one than they did the first one. Okay, so, so that drill sergeant, did he wake you up abruptly in the morning? Did he whisper sweet nothings into your ear through the course of a day? Do you know, a drill sergeant, they get in your face and you do what they tell you to do. Now, maybe not as quickly at the beginning, I mean, they're trying to 
whip this group of 18-year-olds into shape. And so they will, I suspect, and I've not been in the military, but I suspect that they will, with a fierceness that will cause most to tremble, be in your face letting you know what to do. Soldier! And you just like, oh, yes, sir, sir, yes, sir. And give me five, yes, sir, sir. You say, he never said, give me five. Are you kidding me? Give me 50 is what my drill sergeant said. Hey, let me ask you, when you were no longer in the military, discharged, if you were standing, say, in the airport and you heard your drill sergeant come up behind you and say, soldier, would your back have stiffened a little bit? Soldier, 10 hut. And would you have kind of like, oh man, yes, sir, yes, sir. If he, if he stood in front of you and said, salute, would you have saluted? Some of you are like, I, I don't know. Probably, okay. Well, let me ask you this. Would you have to? Does he still have authority? Isn't it interesting that there is one who has been a bad master and so often he gets in our face. It's, it's like we had a, a bad landlord who would come by our, our residence and barge in because he, he held the title deed. He was unreasonable. He was accusatory. We, we could never do anything right. And, and oh, it was terrible. But then we received news that there was a new owner. He, he, he was kind and, and reasonable and and then beyond that, he told me, there, there's, no more, there's no more rent that's due. I'm, I'm taking care of the whole thing on your behalf. I, I have paid it all. But every once in a while, that old landlord comes and he starts pounding on the door and tries to barge in. And, and man, he had such sway and such control on us. But there has been, for, for those who have had, to, to borrow language we're familiar with, there are those who have had bad masters, but there is a glorious biblical emancipation proclamation. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin, that are dead to sin, live any longer? therein. 